So we're continuing on in the doctrines of grace with the difficult doctrine of reprobation. And last week we started to touch upon um, why reprobation is a useful doctrine. Even though it is a difficult doctrine, it is useful. And as a useful doctrine, it's important that we're familiar with it, even though we may not find that it is enjoyable, it may be difficult if we're presenting it to someone else, um, but because the Bible teaches it, it is important that we know it, that we're familiar with it. So we started last week to look at why it is useful. and We're going to continue on that. We're going to do a short uh, recap because we just started to talk on it last week, and as we learned, we, we must speak of it because the Bible speaks of it. We cannot ignore it because the Bible does not ignore it. It is, it is part and parcel of unconditional election. If God chooses the elect, then he must also, it just, it just is implied that there's some that are going to be passed over that are not going to be chosen. So this is what we're looking at. And we spoke last week about how some people... Their response to this is, well, I could never love a God like that. And, okay, fine, but this is what, how the Bible presents God. This is how God has revealed himself to us. So this is what we have to deal with. Well, we need to, be, to really have a better answer, I would say, to someone who has that response that I could not love a God like that. And go, coming out of that is the additional question, maybe, maybe unvoiced by that person, but what we should hear is when they say, I cannot love a God like that, it's that they don't understand the reason for the doctrine. And if we better understand the reason and, and, and don't retreat from discussing this, which I, which I understand that tendency to do that, and this is, this is tough, that's why... Um, that's why Calvin called it the horrible doctrine. It's something he did not want to speak about. And those who are not of the Reformed faith, when you mention Calvin, they think of this really stern, unloving, unyielding uh, theologian where rather, you know, those of us that are in the Reformed faith that know of Calvin know that that man had a pastor's heart, that it, that it pained him to, to have to deal with these issues. But as a man of God, deal with it he must because this is what God revealed. And it was his duty to teach that, to pass it on as it is the duty of the preachers and and pastors in this church to do the same with you. So, again, why is it a useful doctrine? Number one, it assures us that God's promises have not failed. And this is the main thrust in these passages in Romans that we've been looking at, that, that Paul's been speaking of. And again, you know, one of, the, one of the main points here in Romans chapter 9, which is where we've been concentrating um, when we're speaking of unconditional election, verses 6 through 8, Romans 9, 6 through 8, 
Paul reassures his readers that God's word has not failed in God's promises to Israel. And Paul writes, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So we know based on God's own words that he has determined all things from before the beginning of creation. We've looked at that. God has revealed that in his word, that he has made these eternal decrees that this course has been set before he has created the world. So God's word then does not fail in regards to either the elect or the reprobate, those who are passed over. So this means that if, if you heard God's promises and believed his word, you can be sure that God will be faithful to you. And if others are lost, if they're passed over, it is because God has determined that they should be. So their loss does not mean that you will follow them. So Paul is struggling with this, as many of you undoubtedly know, because he is a Jew, and he's seen a widespread rejection of Christ amongst the Jews. And it pains him because he knows without a doubt that the Messiah of Israel has appeared. Right? He knows this from personal experience. He has been totally changed by his encounter with the risen Christ. And he is witnessing to his brother Jews. And they, by and large, are rejecting that. So this is an issue that's dear to his heart. It's like God has promised this to us, yet I am seeing that not all are accepting it. So what does this mean? Well, he knows his scriptures very well, right? The Hebrew Bible. And he knows that in the Hebrew Bible, it's very clear that some who should be chosen are passed over. He sees this in the offspring of the patriarchs the lineage of Jesus Christ, that it is the firstborn is not always the one chosen by God. Much different than the human way of doing things. So, let's see where I am here. You might ask yourself, am I one of the elect? The answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, you're among the elect. This is the only only way anyone can ever discover whether they are truly elect, is that we must respond in faith to the offer of the gospel. And if you're responding in faith to this offer, That is one of the signs of being elect, that you're able to respond. We all know people who outright just reject the gospel from the beginning. I don't believe it. Um, It's made up by man. Whatever their excuses are, or they they just don't want to hear it. It's like their ears are stopped up. And if you need further evidence 
of your election. Examine the fruits of the Spirit in your life. We all should be experiencing transformation of who we are at our core and, and how it impacts our life. If we truly hear the gospel message, if we truly embrace it, if we are one of God's elect, it cannot help but change us at a very basic level and change us in all ways. Now, of course, this is, this is what we call sanctification, and it's a process, and it may not happen immediately. Um, I look back on my own experience, and it seemed to be a long and difficult process at first. It, it was a struggle. I had to be transformed, but God did not do it instantaneously with me. I know others that have claimed that that has happened to them, and perhaps you are one of them. And, and that's a blessing if that, in fact, happened. But if you're, if you're struggling in your sanctification, if there are still times when you feel tugged back to the world, do not lose heart, brethren, that this is part of the process. However, the only infallible proof of election is found in Christ himself and his saving work. Secondly, reprobation helps us to deal with apostasy. Apostasy comes from a Greek word, and it can be translated rebellion, falling away, uh, turning away from, um, a defection. So uh, uh, it's basically, you know, the, 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 the technical theological term, it's a public denial of a previously held religious belief and a distancing from the community that holds to that religious belief. So we've all known people who have apostatized, people who were very much involved in church life, so to speak, who suddenly it's like something changed in them. And they didn't want to come to church. They didn't want to come to Bible study. They didn't even want to talk about Christ anymore to you if you had that sort of relationship with them. When you socialize with them, suddenly it seems as though they want to talk about anything else but their faith. So did God fail these people? Did salvation somehow um, not work? Didn't, it didn't stick. It was like salvation was thrown against the wall and it slid down and fell off onto the floor. Is that what happened? Or did Christ lose them out of his hands? The Father put these people in his hands as saved sheep and maybe Jesus took his eyes off of them or they jumped out of his hands, out of their own power. They fled from our Lord. No, absolutely not. We know those things are ridiculous, don't we? This is not what God's word says. It means that if they continue in their unbelief, now notice I said continue in their unbelief. So we're not talking about someone who goes through a difficult time in their life and for whatever reason you know, and there, there really aren't good reasons for this, but it does happen. Let's just be honest about it. That for some reason, they drift away from the church for a time, for a time. That does happen. That is not what we're talking about with apostasy. That is 
in modern vernacular, that's backsliding, right? And we're not talking about this temporary. We're talking about a continual rejection, a continual unbelief. If that happens, then we know they were actually never amongst God's elect. How is it that they came to what seemed to be a saving faith then? And oftentimes, we may even see that these people have a very, very strong expression of their faith for a season, that they seem to just be on fire, and then the fire just goes out. Well, this is evidence of human effort, that we can bring ourselves to faith for a short period of time through our own willpower, that we can decide this is what I want for myself, and I will work towards it, and I will work hard. But we, if we're doing it on our own, we are going to get burned out. We can't do it. This is what God's word reveals to us. Is it not also what we have experienced in our own lives? That times when, undoubtedly, you know, I'm, I'm no different than you, and you're no different from me. We're all fallen sinners, saved by the grace of God. So our experiences are very, very common. And there's times that I've experienced when it's like, boy, you know, I don't feel like, I don't even feel like going to church today. You know, I just wish I didn't, I just wish I could just go do something else, or I wish, I, I don't feel like reading the Bible. Or, but you're drawn to it, right? And we know that at times like that, that there are influences working on us that are keeping us from what is best for us, right? And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to overcome that, not by our own human effort or willpower. It's at that time that we really are empowered by the Spirit to move forward. God does not want us to fall back. He wants us to move forward, and he will give us the power to do that. So these people that apostatize, when they come to what we think initially is a saving faith, there are all sorts of motives as to why they would do it. And we spoke shortly, or very quickly last week, on those motives, that oftentimes it's emotionalism, they get caught up in the moment, or it's peer pressure, it's those around them or someone they're trying to impress, or maybe, you know, the speaker that they, they hear the gospel from is like a Charles Finney, a very good salesman that pushes for that sale, right? And they just succumb to it, much like that very, very gifted door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman that, that, that convinces you to buy a $500 vacuum cleaner that you can't afford. Um, I don't even know if those guys are around anymore, but I remember the day when people were falling victim to that. It's like, I've got this vacuum cleaner. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. You know, it's cost more than my house payment. So we do, you know, we're, we, we can be, um, I don't want to say tricked, but we can be convinced that we're feeling something by another person. So human effort, if that's the only power behind one faith, then it will eventually fail. And reprobation exposes this false faith. And when we understand reprobation, we understand apostasy. 
And even though, you know, it can be heartbreaking when we see this happen with those that we care about, Scripture reveals to us why it is happening. Now, do we lose hope with someone like that? No, of course we don't. What if, and this is quite possible, what if the first coming to faith happened to be driven by their human willpower because of the family pressure, or they want to be like mom and dad, they want to fit in, and then after a year or two they realize, I don't feel this. And this is important in our culture, isn't feeling something. I don't feel this. I'm not getting it. And they don't want to come to church. They don't want to talk about Christ. They shy away from everything to do with Christianity. And then something miraculous happens later in their life. And it could be years and years later. And it is miraculous, isn't it? When God changes us through the Holy Spirit, when our hearts are transformed, that is a miracle. And it can happen. We are never, ever to lose hope with those we love, with those that we witness to, with those that maybe have walked away from the church because we do not know if, in fact, they are elect or reprobate. God does not reveal that to us. My suggestion is that we treat all as potential brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what their stance is at the moment that we're encountering them. That even means our enemies. That means the enemies of God. Now, that's a difficult thing to do. I struggle with that. And I know many of you also struggle with that. Our third point. Reprobation reminds us that salvation is entirely of divine grace and no human works contribute to it. So you see how these things are fitting together? Just like we're seeing that the doctrines of grace fit together, right? That all of this is connected. There's, there's no real outliers like that. I don't know how that fits in there. So, it's all about divine grace. Not the human will. Whoops. Humum, not humum, human will. There we go. So think about this. And this this is a little bit tough, I think, because, because on one hand, what I'm suggesting is something that we think, well, this would be wonderful if this was true. What if what if none were lost? What if all people were saved. Well, initially, on first thought, I think, oh, wouldn't that be just absolutely marvelous? But if that was the case, then would we not think that God owes us salvation? That salvation is owed to all people? I think that would be the assumption, wouldn't it? We would think that God saved us either because of who we are, that we're deserving of it, or because of who he is. But either way, he has to do it. Now, if we are unbalanced in our understanding of God's attributes, then if, we, if we're focusing on 
this idea of emotionalism that we, that we are so focused on in our culture, if we're focusing on that and, and God's love, then it would make sense to us that God would save all people and that then what are we neglecting? We're neglecting God's righteousness, his justice, his holiness. How could that be? That means that the person who's had absolutely no sign of any saving faith in their life while they're living this human experience that at death, immaterial, irregardless of what they've done during their life, irregardless of who they've harmed, how many people they've harmed, the sins they've committed, that God will, like a kindly grandfather, just wink his eye and say, come on in, it's okay, my my son died for you, even though it doesn't appear that it did a lick of good you know, during your life. That's not to say that that person that I just described at the moment of death may not have an encounter with the risen Christ in the microsecond between this life and the next, and who knows when that happens, how long that period seems to those experiencing it and us when we experience it. Time then perhaps becomes entirely irrelevant. And the gospel can be presented by the risen Lord to a hardened sinner who hates God, just like Saul on his way to Damascus. When the Lord appeared to him and knocked him off his horse and blinded him. So we never need lose hope. Even when those we love who are in a state of sin die. We do not know what God has done in that split second. Now, Scripture is very clear. If, in fact, a person dies and does not come to faith in Christ in this life, and realize when I'm talking about the moment of death, I'm talking about this life. They have not yet crossed over. But once that crossing over occurs, then the chance for salvation is gone, that that person is then passed over, that that person is reprobate. So understand what, what I'm saying and what God's word says. <clears throat> so again, scripture teaches us all are not saved. Therefore, the salvation of the elect is due to divine mercy only. And this is the chief teaching of these texts in Romans that we've been examining. This is what Paul is driving home to us. That it is God who does these things. It's his mercy. It's not our deserving. And number four, point number four, reprobation glorifies God. Now, for someone who rejects the doctrine of reprobation, I would think that this would probably be the most difficult point um, to accept. How could this doctrine glorify God? Because it seems to me, one may say, or you may hear someone say this to you, it seems to make God into someone that is very harsh and judgmental. And how dare the judge of all the world be judgmental? As soon as we begin to think 
that God owes us something or that we that God must do something. When we start if we think that way, then we limit God. We're diminishing his glory. We're taking away his omnipotence, if you will. We're saying, no, I'm not letting God have that power. I'm going to keep that power. And James Montgomery Boyce, what he says is election and reprobation, both of them together surround and protect God's glory. That's what these doctrines do. And the doctrine of election and the doctrine of reprobation work together in this. They remind us that God is absolutely free and sovereign. And as we've learned, God is really the only absolutely free being. That no one else has this freedom that God has. This idea of what philosophers call libertarian free will. The fact that a decision can be made apart from any other influence surrounding it. Now whether... Whether we could say God's will is libertarian um, is, uh, uh, is a rabbit trail that um, we could go down and we would just be, we'd just be parsing you know, words and semantics and I don't think that's, that's, that's profitable or edifying for us. But you get the idea that I'm talking about, right? And Because we don't want to compare God's will to the philosophical idea of human will. I think that's a mistake to do that, but it gives us a feel for it anyway. It gives us uh, an insight, an understanding, you know, if you will. So God being absolutely free and sovereign, he can do absolutely whatever he wants with his universe, right? Why? Because he created it. And why did he create it? Did he create it because he owes that to us? No, he created for his own good pleasure, right? To glorify himself. And when we read what the Bible reveals to us about God and what God does, we can always count on this, that it is always about God's glorification. Everything in God's revealed word is to bring glory to him. So, since the damnation of the reprobate is part of God's sovereignty, then in it, God must be glorified. These things flow one to into another, just as he is glorified in the salvation of the elect. So when we are elect by God to salvation, we see glorification to God in that. But when we consider the reprobate, we must not then shift and think that that doctrine brings shame to God. That, that, is, that is a mistake, and I, and I would say it's a common mistake um, in modern evangelical Christianity. God's justice and mercy are both glorious because they both demonstrate his divine sovereignty. It's his decision. It's his absolute choice, and there's no part that we, through our own efforts, that we play in it. And when we understand these things, we also understand that reprobation then is a gospel doctrine. Why is it a gospel doctrine? Well, Boyce, I think, is very helpful on this. Because he says, reprobation highlights mercy and reduces those who hear and accept the doctrine to a position of 
utter supplication, of humble petition, entreaty to God. It just puts us in a position where we realize we're not making this happen, that God is. It humbles us. It takes away our pride. It forces us to cry like we read in the Gospels, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as long as we believe we are in control of our own destinies, we will never assume this position, will we? If we are the masters of our fate, why would we call out to Christ to save us? We would just work harder, we would do better, we'd be like this person, we'd, we'd engage in all these, you know, uh, per, these, these acts, right? We would be, 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 the active verb. You know, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And it's never-ending, isn't it? If you've ever tried to work on your own salvation, if you've ever seen someone who is of uh, perhaps another faith that, that focuses on works righteousness, how much work must they do constantly? Constantly. There's something that must be done, something that is not done right. It's not done perfect enough. They've got to run back to confession. They've got to uh, make sure that they that they give more to um, the church fund, that they don't eat certain things on certain days, what have you, that they, that they must be punished, that, that rather than, um, than being saved from their sins and, and having salvation, they must pay penance for everything that they do that is not acceptable. So when we understand that we are totally in the hands of a just and holy God and that we are without any hope of salvation apart from his free and utterly sovereign intervention, then we will call out to him for mercy. That's our only right response. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 8, the latter half of that verse, 8b, it says, And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. See, these are mortals whose names have not been written in the book of life. They've been excluded from it, from the creation of the world. It's not that they did something in their lifetime to have their name put in the book. It's not like their name was in the book and it was erased. They've been excluded from it. So we see the the doctrine of election going back to and before the very creation. It means that no one listed in the book could have had their name blotted out because of something that happens in history. By history, I mean in time. We exist in time. This is talking about something that's out of time, that is before the creation of time itself. And Revelation 13, verse 8, says this, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. And the it here is the first beast, the beast that comes from the sea. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, it's very interesting here. In the Greek, it can be translated differently. It could be translated also, those whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, who was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. The Lamb slaughtered from the foundation of the world. 
What is this telling us? Because it, it works both ways in the Greek. It's telling us two things here. There's a correlation that we should see between the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world and the writing of the book of life. And what this correlation is, is that salvation, and hence the need for salvation, and I'm speaking about the fall, of the elect and the non-elect, all of this was predetermined before creation. So we, we must not get it in our heads that everything was going good in the garden, and this is the way God had decreed it until Adam and Eve messed it up. And then God brought in plan B. Now, those of us that are planners always have plan B, right? When I was a SWAT sergeant, when we had an operation, we always had a plan A, a plan B, sometimes a plan C. And we, we trained to shift very, very quickly. If we, couldn't, if we couldn't get in a location because something had happened at our main entry point, we'd switch to plan B. There was another, a secondary entry point, sometimes a third entry point, et cetera, et cetera. God doesn't work that way. He decrees from before the beginning. So it's not that, you know, that, that Adam and Eve did this and God's like, yeah, what do I do now? You know, I got to come up with a plan. No, this was decreed. The fall was decreed. Our salvation was decreed. And those who were passed over were decreed. Why would the lamb be slain before the world unless that was the plan of salvation all along, that the lamb must be slain. There's a marvelous lesson there for us that we could spend a lot of time talking about and pondering. But back to the doctrine of reprobation. It illustrates the two senses of election. I believe we've, we've spoke on these uh, briefly. We're going to go over this again. Um, there's historical election. The historically elect, though, think of this, can become non-elect because of their unfaithfulness during human history, during their time on the earth. The historically elect, excuse me, includes both the elect and the reprobate. Both are included in that. So what is this category of the historically elect? Well, obviously, the first thing that probably jumps to mind is the nation of Israel, Right? that we know there was elect in Israel because this is, the law, this is, the, this is how God brought the Messiah into the world through the, 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 the nation of Israel. So there had to be elect there. But also the church is historically elect. We're talking about the visible church, those that we see around us in the church every Sunday, those that go to other churches, those through church history who have been a part of the church. And then... Tying into this historical election is eternal election, or we might call it personal election. It's the same thing. And this number in this category is fixed from eternity. This is the ones that God has chosen. But both types of election are a result of God's eternal decree. He has decreed these things. In the first one, the historical election, God may decree that some may lose their covenant status. And in the second, or eternal election, there is no loss of covenant status. And the covenant status applies to both Israel and the church. So these two things, historical and eternal election, are distinct. 
but they cannot be entirely separated from one another because they're both aspects of God's saving purpose. The election of Israel and the temporary election of individuals in history are the means by which God gathers together those who will receive his final eternal blessings. Those of us that are eternally elect are eternally elect because of God's historical election. The historical election brings us to the point where God works his eternal decree and election. And Jesus Christ, think about this, he's the remnant of historical election. So in, in the nation of Israel, their history, we read about the remnant constantly, right? That there's always an elect remnant that God saves. He always saves a certain part of his people eternally, right? They, Israel has never, never been totally wiped out. It's, it's kind of miraculous, isn't it, that this nation, the small nation that seems to have enemies on every side throughout history has always had a remnant that God has saved. Well, Peter, in his, in his first letter, 1 Peter 1.20, he talks about Jesus being eternally elected by God. He said, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, the church, us today, the church in Peter's time also, together with those whom the Father has chosen in him. So in the end, historical and eternal election, they coincide in history, they don't coincide because historical election works in time. It's a temporal process and it's a temporary, just in time thing. Whereas eternal election is forever settled before creation. So, all of us who are eternally elect are also historically elect. But not all who are historically elect are eternally elect. An historical election is the process in history by which God executes his decree to save the eternally elect. As God judges the reprobate through history, the difference narrows between historically elect and eternally elect. In the end, the outcome of historical election is the same as that of eternal election. Only at the end. So historical election is a mirror of eternal election. Just as God saves Israel by grace, so he elects believers eternally by grace. God promises blessings to Israel that are essentially the blessings of salvation, which is the presence of God dwelling with them. That's what God does in history with Israel, right? God's covenant presence with Israel in the tabernacle, in the temple, is an image, it's a foreshadowing of his presence with the eternally elect believers in Christ. It's something that is given historically as a promise, if you will, of, of the good things to come. The chief difference is, of course, that among the historically elect, there are those who will not be eternally saved. We can think of historical election as the visible and temporary form of eternal election. We cannot see another's heart. We've talked about this to know for sure whether he's eternally elect. But we can see who God has led to unite with his visible body, the church. We can see who's given a credible profession of faith in Christ. 
by observing the process of historical election in the light of scripture, we gain a limited knowledge of eternal election. It gives us a taste of it, if you will. So those who join the church are historically elect in the way that Israel was historically elect. But it is possible, isn't it, for people in the church to renounce their faith, to apostatize. We've talked about this. So being a member of a church does not guarantee membership in the new covenant. It does not guarantee eternal election. But the church is important. It's, a, it's the new covenant institution that proclaims God's eternal election in Christ and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' atonement. So we shouldn't think that then the church is not necessary. The church is an integral part of this process of, the, of being eternally elect. It's, it's how God has chosen to do things. And we may not like that, maybe because it's like, it's, you know, that God just can work without people. Well, that's true, but that is not how God has chosen to work. God has chosen to work through people, through history, in time, in places. And the way we come to faith is through our hearing, we, and we do not hear unless there's preaching. So there is that foolishness of preaching. And let me tell you, as one who preaches, there are times when I do feel that I'm being foolish. Because how, <laughs> what right do I have to proclaim this? I realize how, how dirty my mouth is, and yet I'm, I'm proclaiming the word of God. Every, every, I could, I would hazard to guess that most preachers at some point in time are going to feel this. That the unworthiness, and that is the foolishness of it, that God works through unworthy men to present the worthiness of Christ to fallen people. I think we'll end there next, I don't think, well, next time we meet, I'll put it that way, that way I'm safe, and I'm not saying next week when it's not next week. We're going to talk about the three things the doctrine of reprobation does not teach, which we often, or people can think it does teach. We have to realize where it fits in and where it doesn't fit in. So um, thank you for your attention to the lesson this morning. I know it's a little bit, it was a little bit difficult and not maybe you know, the most exciting thing that we have to deal with it, but it, it is important. And join me in a word of prayer, and we'll have a break before the 11 a.m. worship service. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this doctrine that we've talked about, this doctrine of reprobation, Lord. We know it's important because you put it in your word, Lord. And, and yes, we, str we struggle with it. You know we're struggling with it, Father. Um, just help us to sort it out and to understand it. And until we understand it in our limited way, which will always be limited. Help us to accept it, to accept it as your revealed truth, and then the Holy Spirit, may he guide us to a better understanding. Father, bless these brethren who have been here this morning with me as, as we've struggled through this lesson, Father. Um, bless the remainder of our morning and our, our worship service that we may glorify you. Bless Pastor Steve as he comes forward to deliver your word uh, in his sermon, Father, that it may edify us, that we may profit from it, and that we may be focused on you today and the rest of the week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.